Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 9th of July 2023, 11 o'clock service. Stephen Kurt speaking on the spirit of judgment. Well, earlier at the 9.30 service, we had a baptism. And we had a baptism of a little girl called Alice. And there she is. Uh, she's a little treasure. And she is the daughter of Roy and Daisy Carley. She's the sister of William and Bertie, who come to the 9.30 service as a family altogether. And she is the granddaughter of the person who that window over there remembers in the middle of the South Isle, that window, Susie Morris. Susie Morris, who sadly died uh, at a very young age in 1998, and uh, it was her granddaughter, Alice, who was baptised this morning wearing the same christening gown as Daisy wore and Susie wore before her. And, uh, yep, they're remembered by that stained glass window. Uh, Susie is in the middle of the South Isle. And against that context, it might seem completely inappropriate that we had that same New Testament reading at the 9.30 service that we had just a few moments ago. That reading where we get a couple in the early church called Ananias and Sapphira, there they are, who having lied about how much money they gave to the church were very suddenly and dramatically struck down dead as a result, weren't they? Now, some might go further and say not only is that a passage that's completely inappropriate to preach on on the day of a baptism, it's not particularly appropriate to have read or spoken about church uh, ever. It's a passage that we should just quietly ignore. And if truth be told, that very often happens. That passage is very rarely read in church, very rarely preached upon. But of course, it is part of Scripture and that option of ignoring it and sidelining it isn't really available to us. The story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 is actually a passage that precisely through its rather scary nature tells us something really important about the nature of the church and the role of the Holy Spirit within it. And on a day when we've celebrated at Christ Church the Lord adding to our number those whom he's calling by the baptism of Alice at our 9.30 service, it's actually as appropriate as any other Sunday to think a bit more about what it means to be a community in which God dwells by his Holy Spirit. See, it's very possible in life just to want the good stuff, isn't it? It's very easy in life just to want the nice stuff. And we can be precisely the same when it comes to thinking about the Holy Spirit. So far in this series of sermons, we've heard about various different aspects of the Spirit's power. We've heard about the Spirit of power. We've heard about the Spirit of witness. We've heard about the Spirit of prayer. And we've heard about the Spirit of fellowship. And while all of those subjects come with challenge, it's generally been a challenge to grab the opportunities that God, through his Holy Spirit, has given us. The whole point of this series of sermons, including Katie's personal testimony about her experience of the Holy Spirit last week, has been to encourage us. To encourage us to realise the power of God that is there and available for us to tap into. To recognise what is possible because of the truth of Pentecost. That because of what Jesus did through his death, resurrection and ascension, God has now come to live within his people making things possible that weren't before. 
And that's why both individual Christians and, more crucially, the church as a whole is called God's temple. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel knew that God was in heaven, but they also believed that God was active on earth. And the special place on earth where his presence was able to be encountered was the temple in Jerusalem, a physical building. The temple was the powerful symbol that God and his power wasn't distant from the world, but was at hand was available for his people to tap into. That's why it was such a disaster when that temple was destroyed. When the Babylonians destroyed that temple in 586 BC and took the people off into exile. And while the temple was later rebuilt, God's presence never quite returned to it in the same way. Why? Because God had a bigger and better plan in mind to bring his presence into the world in a personal way through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's why when Jesus spoke about his death and resurrection, he used temple language. These are the words that he spoke. He said, destroy this temple, and he was speaking about himself, and I will raise it again in three days. So Jesus comes to be God's special temple in person the personal presence of God within the world, and after his ascension into heaven and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, it's then the church, you and I, who become that temple because we are the community in which God dwells by his Holy Spirit. And it's this that explains all the wonderful stuff that the church was able to do because it had God's power working through it. All of the stuff that we've heard about over the last few weeks. But by the same token, and here's the link to that story that we had read, the church being a temple of the Holy Spirit means that it also has to be a place of holiness. You see, back in the Old Testament, what we see is that God's presence amongst his people was, yes, a source of great comfort and power and guidance, but also something that because of God's great holiness, his people could never take lightly. And that's why on the occasions when we see that happening, people having a casual or irreverent attitude to God's presence, the results could be quite terrible. So in Leviticus chapter 10, we see the sons of Aaron, Moses' brother, and Israel's priest, going into God's presence casually, and being instantly consumed by fire, being instantly burnt up. We see a similar story in 2 Samuel, where the Ark of the Covenant is on its way to Jerusalem, and it's on a cart, and the oxen stumble, and this guy called Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady the Ark, and he's promptly uh, struck down because of his irreverence. Now, some people take these stories completely literally, and others think they're more symbolic. But what they're demonstrating either way is that God's powerful presence amongst his people is something that they should never and can never be casual about. That's why in the Old Testament, the people had to keep distant from God. And it was only the priests, having thoroughly purified themselves, that were allowed near his presence. And that big a curtain separated them most of the time from the most holy place where God was seen to dwell. 
I remember the first time I sat in a car with my dad when I was 17 and I was learning to drive or started learning to drive. Now, if I'd known it would take 22 years for me to pass the test, I might not have bothered, but I didn't know that at the time. So I sat there, and this often has happened, perhaps it happened to some of you, I sat there with my dad in that car, and as many parents have done down the years, he told me as a 17-year-old that driving was, yes, exciting and liberating, but also, because of the power involved, highly dangerous, and should never, therefore, be approached in anything like a casual or thoughtless manner. While it's not a perfect parallel, there is something similar in the Bible's view on our attitude towards God's presence through the Holy Spirit. God's presence is something wonderful and intended to bless us in all sorts of amazing ways, but precisely because it is so powerful, the presence of God is something that we should always respect and never sit lightly to. And that, I suggest, is how we're to interpret this rather scary story of Ananias and Sapphira. That, I believe, is the point of it. The early chapters of the Acts of the Apostles are trying to show that through the Holy Spirit, God's presence was amongst the early Christians. They really had become God's new temple, the symbol of his presence in the world. But in just the same way as those incidents in the Old Testament, where people came to grief through being casual or irreverent about God's presence, so the same the writer of Acts is saying, could happen and did happen to people within the early church. And in this case, it happened because of their deceit, didn't it? At the end of Acts chapter 4, and we didn't have this part read to us, we hear about a man called Barnabas, who owned a field and sold it so that he could give the money to the apostles for the work of the church. And what then happens, chapter 5, flows on from that. Another member of the church, Ananias, there he is, got a bit of a crooked face, hasn't he, in that picture, it gives quite a lot away. A man called Ananias then sold some property that he owned, and with his wife Sapphira's knowledge, he brings just part of the money to the apostles. So what was the problem with that? Weren't they meant to keep any money for themselves? Surely some generosity to the church was better than none. Well, the problem was not with the amount of money they gave. The problem was that they lied about it. Ananias, when he brought the money to the church, pretended that it was all of the proceeds that he had got from that field. And his wife, Sapphira, some hours later, did the same. And Peter, who appears to have been the leading apostle at this early stage of the church, was really severe about it, wasn't he? Here are the words that he spoke. He says to Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied, not just to the church, to the Holy Spirit? If the church is God's temple containing his spirit, then a lie to the church is lying to God, is lying to God's spirit. A bit later, he says this to Ananias, reinforcing it. You've not lied to men, but to God. And then a bit later, he says to Sapphira, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? And a rather scary result, as I say, is that uh, when Ananias and Sapphira, a few hours apart, hear these words from Peter, they promptly drop down dead. 
So what are we to make of this? And what on earth has it got to teach us about the Holy Spirit? Well, the first thing is this point, really, I've already made, about having a proper respect, a proper fear for God's presence within the church through his Holy Spirit. God's Spirit is within his people for entirely positive reasons, to enable us to have the power to do and be things that we couldn't do and be otherwise. The Spirit is here to give us a love for one another that we wouldn't be able to achieve otherwise. The Spirit's here to give us a courage to witness to God and what he has done in Jesus, particularly in difficult circumstances, with a courage that we wouldn't be able to show otherwise. The Spirit is here to give us a wisdom and an insight in discerning what is good and what is bad within the world in a way that we wouldn't be able to see otherwise. But precisely because of all of this, the enormous power of God's Spirit amongst us has to be respected. And we do this primarily by seeking to live lives that are consistent with what God is like. In other words, by seeking to live lives of holiness. Now, we fail in this. Of course we do. And that's where God's forgiveness comes in. That's why we have a confession weekly in our services. That's why in the Lord's Prayer we are told to pray for our forgiveness. But passages like the one that we've looked at this morning are there to remind us that being casual about hypocrisy, claiming to be or do one thing while being or doing quite another, is actually really dangerous. It's really dangerous when we're living within a community that contains the presence of God through his Holy Spirit. It's less dangerous if we're not. If we're outside of the church and we lie or whatever, it's different. But when we are part of a community that claims to be containing the presence of God, God's holy temple, it means these things are far more dangerous. Now, like those stories in the Old Testament, there are some that take the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts very literally, while others see it as more of an illustration. But either way, it's pointing us to the importance of the church being a place of integrity and the danger that comes when this isn't the case. Integrity is when who we are in reality matches up to what we claim to be. It's when what we say and claim to stand for matches up to how we behave in private. I remember a few years ago now going to Rains Park High School when we were looking at possible schools for our children. I can't even remember which of my children we were having in mind when I went around that school. In fact, I can't remember anything at all about my experience of that school apart from one amazing statement that it's then headmaster made. And this might be why I've forgotten everything else, because this had such a big impact on me, and I'll never forget it. This headmaster, I think he's moved on, is at another school now, said this. He said, I want the children at Rains Park High School to have integrity. And he said, and my definition of integrity to the kids at this school is doing the right thing when no one's looking. Doing the right thing when no one's looking. That's a pretty good definition of integrity, whatever age we've reached, isn't it? God wants the church to be a shining beacon of love and courage, but also of holiness. 
God wants the church to be a community of people that live lives that reflect God's goodness and for that holiness to not just be at a surface level, to not just be at the level of appearances, but to be something that runs right through the centre of what the church is. It might be faltering, it will be imperfect, but it has to be genuine and it has to be without hypocrisy. And the particular challenge to us coming from this passage, I think, is the challenge of being truthful. Or to put it more bluntly, the challenge of not lying. Lying is an incredibly useful tool for getting through life, isn't it? Middle-class people quite often can really perfect the art of using it really effectively. And of course, we live in a culture that says uh, to accuse someone of lying is awful, to actually lie is perhaps completely understandable. Especially when what we say isn't a full-blown lie, but it's just exaggerating something, just gilding the lily, or it's just leaving out uh, information that happened when we're uh, telling the story of something that purports to be true. Being economical with the truth, as it was once put. We've all done it because it's been convenient for our purposes. And we've all told ourselves that there's no particular harm in it. But when we're claiming to be a Christian, this passage is telling us it is positively dangerous. And that's because it is so discordant with the Holy Spirit living within us. We are doing violence to the Spirit living within us. That's what Peter was making clear to Ananias and Sapphira. Now, we might not drop down dead as Ananias and Sapphira in the story did, but what this story points us to is that each time we lie, knowingly lie as a Christian, we lose a little bit more of that new life that God wants us to have. We become a bit less of that person that God is preparing us to be through his spirit living within us ahead of the new creation when he completes that person that he's making us into be. We become a little bit less fully human. You see, the Spirit is given to be preparing us and shaping us and changing us into that person that one day God will make us in our entirety. And we're sabotaging the process when we lie or we're untruthful. Now, putting it more positively, if we're committed to speaking the truth in love, and speaking the truth in love is a really important part of speaking the truth, it will all be part of us being inwardly renewed by God's Holy Spirit, further and further changed in this lifetime into the person that God wants us to be. I mentioned my dad earlier in the context of learning to drive. And I've said this before, but I'll repeat it. I've got to say the thing that's made the biggest impact, the biggest single impact upon my Christian development, the thing that has helped me growing up to know that Christianity really was true, was seeing my parents' integrity. Seeing that their faith really did match up to what they were like when no one was looking. As a clergy kid, uh, you do grow up uh, seeing uh, the inside of vicarage life. And uh, the public persona of my parents, it didn't mean they were perfect, but their public persona as Christians matched up to what they were like when no one in particular was looking. 
That's what God wants, actually, for all children brought up in Christian families. That's why the integrity, not just of parents, but grandparents, all of you are grandparents, uncles, aunts, godparents, and so on. That integrity is so powerful. Grow up in a Christian household where there's complete hypocrisy between what parents claim to live for and what they're like in practice, and actually nothing is more damaging for children on all sorts of levels. And sadly, I've seen that uh, again and again over the years. Grow up in a household where those children see consistency and integrity, whether it's their parents, whether it's their grandparents, whether it's other key people who uh, have an influence on their life, and nothing is more powerful in the other direction. It's hugely powerful because children can sniff out inconsistency a mile away. But by the same token, they can really see consistency as well, and they really admire it and it's powerful, and it goes deep within them. We have lots of people coming to Christchurch who've had a sort of 20-year gap uh, from church. You know, they have their children, they um, get interested in church, they come along to our 9.30 uh, service and get stuck in and, and hopefully stay and really develop in their faith. But quite often when I talk to people there, they have had influence earlier in their life, which has not um, been wasted at all. They have gone along to a Sunday school when they were a child where the teachers there showed real integrity and love and care. They have had a Christian influence on them in earlier times. And quite often when we show that sort of integrity, it does have an effect, even if it happens long after our lifetime has finished. So it is a challenging passage that we've heard this morning, but it's a vital one. And the challenge, I believe, coming to us this morning is to challenge the challenge to really live by what we profess. And in particular, the importance of us making a real commitment to truthfulness and recognising that the church actually can't be any of those things that it's meant to be through God's power, through the Spirit. You know, that witness, that prayer, that fellowship, all of those things can't really happen unless we're committed to being a church that's holy a church that reflects the, God of na uh, the nature of God at its centre. And truthfulness is a crucial part of that. So let's remember, rather than ignore, this rather scary story of Ananias and Sapphira from the early church, and its lesson that lying of whatever kind is really dangerous. It's particularly dangerous when we're a follower of Jesus and we're part of the church that forms a temple of his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, it is a great challenge to us. And it's one that we can be convicted by at this very moment, but then very easily ignore once we go out the doors. So would you direct us, Lord God, to those places where our life needs to show greater integrity and in particular where it needs to show greater truthfulness. We know that we live within a culture where telling lies is not really seen as something that's wrong, unless you're found out in some obvious way. But we pray, Lord God, that you would give us a fear of you, a proper respect for your Holy Spirit dwelling 
amongst this community. And that we really would put a priority on never claiming things that are not wholly true. We ask that you give us a real commitment to integrity. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.